to get to read. Um, my name is Heidi, and it's a privilege to get to read this passage from Luke chapter 15. Starts, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what was going on. Your brother has come back, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Amen. Thank you, Heidi. <laughs> cool. And we've been in the study called Lost and Found to begin this new year. And the idea is like, what if we could just begin seeing the grace of God, right? Seeing our status, knowing our identity. And so um, it's interesting because in the Gospel of Luke, this is all Luke chapter 15. We're just finishing up the series today. Um, it says, Jesus told them a parable, one. But you could say it has like three chapters, right? of one parable. And today sort of begins, let me begin with this question. It's like, when do you celebrate? I mean, come on, when do you have a big party? When does it happen for you? When your team wins the big game, right? Or is it when somebody in your family has a birthday? 
In our family this year, we had three new babies born. Come on, we're going to celebrate. And so this is where we're led by Jesus in these scenes of celebration. About a year ago, I read the story of a young boy who became lost in the southern part of Kenya. You'll see a map of southern Kenya where it comes down by Tanzania. One day, it was in December, he was out with his brothers and they were herding animals. The day was coming to an end and this storm came up. And right away, these boys were like lightning. We're running to the house. Well, they run to the house. They look around and their little brother, he's gone. I mean, he is not with them. He did not make the journey back as they were running, as night was descending, and their brother happened to be four years old. So looking around, those parents panic like crazy, and they go out in the night. They're looking and trying to follow his footprints, which they do for a while, but a point in time comes where the rain has been so much, they cannot see those footprints anymore. Now, they don't stop searching. They search through the night into the next morning, and they cannot find a trace of him. And they're now in day two. But then they get out search parties from their village, and they're, they're going in all different directions. Day two, they find some more tracks, but they also lose those. They think they know which direction he's gone, but that day passes, and he is not found. It is not until the fourth day of searching that they find a pilot from a local organization. They have him out flying through the wilderness around them to get any sight of this little boy. And it's not until day five that the pilot reports a miracle. This is what he says. He says, off my left wing, I saw a tiny figure below me surrounded by a mass of shrubs and trees. I could not believe my eyes, but there he was, a tiny boy surrounded by endless wilderness. I was in shock that he was alive and still walking. Can you believe five days later, a four-year-old boy? And so what he does is he decides he's going to fly a circle around this boy a little higher in the sky so that one of the search teams will notice. And sure enough, one of the search teams comes over and there's this incredible reunion. By the way, he has found 18 kilometers from where he was lost. That four-year-old boy over five days traversed over 10 miles talk about a celebration. Oh my goodness. I mean, they are thrilled. Look at this. And they take him back to the village. There's this amazing celebration. Here's the pilot. This is what he said. He said, this is people's custom. It's imperative that the search party walk back to the village with the boy all the way chanting a song of blessing and thanks. And it's like, I want to be in that village when they have that celebration. Because by the way, the world there, it is filled with wild animals. Really, is a four-year-old boy going to survive five days? By the way, he, his feet and legs, he had all kinds of uh, stickers and everything. He was dehydrated and delirious, but he was alive. And by the way, let me tell you what happened. They sent the pilot home, but they sent him home with a goat. We've got to give you something, right? So I tried to imagine, what is it like taking the goat on the airplane to go home, you know? But they're so happy, you know? It's amazing. And, and the goal of this passage today is that we would get that. Because God is in search of people who have wandered away into life and have gotten lost, and he has gone in search of them. And in the finding of them, there's an amazing celebration, an amazing party. Would you pray together with me? Lord, sometimes it feels like your word is so many years ago, another culture in which we live. 
But Lord, when we hear it, when we really hear it, it echoes in the chambers of our hearts because of what we've lived. We know this story, and we're living in it too. And we learn that it's not just about Jesus and those people then, but it's about Jesus and all of us right now and how he is in pursuit of us. Just how great your love is for human beings. And so help us to get that today, Lord, that we might join the joy of heaven with worship of our own to acknowledge who you are in your glory as people who are lost are found. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 700 years before Jesus is born, one of the books of the, one of the prophets, the prophet Jonah, actually ends with a question. I don't know if you know this parable we're looking at today. The ending isn't there. Jesus dropped off the ending. We'll see. Because the question is, well, how will we respond? What will we do? But these are those words to Jonah, the prophet. And should I not have concern for that great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? You see, the book ends with a question to this prophet of Jonah who represents the people of God saying, really, why are you not concerned for those people who are lost? I mean, I'm concerned. Don't you know how I feel about hum humanity? You see, God created humankind to invite human beings into the circle of fellowship that is, uh, Esteban was saying, God created us for the purpose of joining that circle of fellowship that he knows as a part of the Trinity. And here's the prophet Jonah. By the way, he does not love Nineveh. These are the enemies of Israel. He hates them. And so when God tells them first to go and, and bring his message, he's like, no way. And then finally, when he does go, he rejoices in pronouncing this message of judgment. And he goes outside the city waiting for God to destroy the people. And when God forgives them and doesn't bring judgment, he's furious. He can't believe that God hasn't done this. And God said, who do you think I am? Do you think I shouldn't love these people too? Now, when I read that, I think this is the day of Jesus. You'll say, why are you starting over here with Jonah? We're looking at the parable of the prodigal son. Well, at the day of Jesus, the two groups of people in the crowd were first people who the religious folks called sinners. They're people who had done stuff big enough in their lives that were never going to be forgotten, that they were told they could never be forgiven. And those people just flocked to Jesus because he shared with them a love from the Father they'd never heard before. But outside that group of people were religious leaders, sometimes called scribes and Pharisees, who looked in and they're like, Jesus, what are you spending your time with those people for? They're, they're throwaways. These people don't matter. And what's worse, what does it say about you that you're hanging out with them? And so Jesus tells this extended parable with three chapters, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and now the lost son. And his message is to say, look, those people who you think don't have a chance to be loved by God, they're loved by God too. And God is pursuing them. Now, when I read this parable, to me, it's like a wake-up call. How do, we, how do you see people? How do you see people that, that are around you? Do we care for people? Do they matter to us? Would we go in search of them if they're lost? And if they're recovered, do we join in this celebration for them? Is that where our heart is? 
One powerful book I read last year I would recommend by David Brooks. He's a political commentator. It's entitled How to Know a Person, and it's super confessional because he realized in his life that, wow, he never really cared that much about people. He really never sought to, to see them and to really know them. And in there, he, he discovers one of the things that happens is he's traveling across the country and meeting people, and he meets a guy in Waco, Texas, who's the pastor of a church that's actually called the Church Under the Bridge, because it meets under an interstate overpass. And it's filled with all sorts of people. And he meets this pastor, he sees him in public, and he sees him just you know, giving love to people. This is what he says. He realizes he's someone, he's seeing someone made in the image of God. He's looking at a person who has a soul of infinite value and dignity, a soul so important that Jesus was willing to die for that person. And David Brooks looks in and he's like, man, how do I get my heart there? How do I actually see people and know people and, and love people? And so in that book, it's like the journey of this experience for him. And it makes you ask, well, do you want your heart to be there? Do you want your heart to be at the place where you can actually see people and look at them the way God looks at them to appreciate and value them? Because what, what Jesus is saying, as with Jonah, we're missing the people who are, who are right around us. And Jesus has come to go in search of them. But like Jonah, we can, we can miss the point of who God is. We can miss this deep loving. And so in these three stories Jesus tells, he is calling us to see the love of the Father, and he's inviting us to join in the search. And so I want to look at with you today is the learning this gospel of grace. And as we go into this parable, you'll notice there are far more details we can talk about or look at. It's sort of like we're dump, jumping into the deep end of the love of God, and there's a chance we could drown here. So I just want to look at two headings or two images, you could say. First, the Father who loves us, and then about the Son who retrieves us and rejoices over us. Now, the story begins in the most surprising way. And if you lived in the ancient world and you were in the crowd and you heard Jesus tell this story, you would go, ugh. You would gasp or you would cringe. It starts like this. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and he set out for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, let me tell you why the crowd would cringe when they hear this. A Bible scholar, his name is Ken Bailey, taught in institutions in the Middle East, spent 50 years among tribal people like the people Jesus is speaking to. And so he would go to them and he would basically say, look, if something like this happened in your village or among your people, how would everybody respond? And he said the conversations almost always went like this. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village, like to get your share of the estate? Never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Why? 
The request means his, he wants his father to die. As he sees his dad getting older, he's like, look, I want my stuff. I want to get out of here. Forget about you. I can't wait until you die. I want my part right now. This would be absolutely scandalous. No, there was no precedent for anything like this. The family would be disgraced in the entire community. And the reason is because in their families, everything was done out of love for and support of the father. And now the son, he wants him dead. But notice what the father does. It's as shocking as the request. It says he divided his property between them. In other words, the father takes what is precious and has been preserved for generations, and he gives it to his ungrateful and really his hateful son. But I, now I read that story and I'm like, oh no, I'm beginning to identify with this now. This is sort of a bit like our story, isn't it? I mean, think of us, think of what God has given us to enjoy. The incredible amount of freedom you have had to make choices in your life and really sort of live your life as you want. God has given us the world to enjoy. And often we do this without any regard for our father. But by the way, the father does this. Why does he do it? Because this is who he is. He's loving. By the way, even our lives don't belong to us. You didn't choose to be born. You didn't endow yourself with the gifts and resources that you enjoy. It's all a gift of your loving Heavenly Father. But like the prodigal, often we're glad to take the gifts, but uh, the Father, not so much. Right? We just want it ourselves. And so the prodigal runs off and he blows it all on wasteful living. He gives no regard to its real value or to his Father at all. And soon, the money runs out. He falls on hard times. This son of a wealthy landowner descends into like a hell of his, of his own making. He's feeding pigs, and he's envying the pigs like an animal himself. He begs, and nobody gives him anything. And this is what we're told. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I'm starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now we read that like repentance. Like this guy is like, he's sorry for all of this. But Jesus doesn't use the word repent. And the reason is because the change of mind of the prodigal doesn't happen because he's sorry. It, come, it happens because he's come to the end of his tether. He's starving to death. And actually what we're told here is the speech that he's concocting so that when he goes home, he can hopefully get his dad to sign off on this deal. He's going to go home, and he's going to say, look, hire me like one of your day laborers, because by the way, then he can make some money, he can live in the village, he can rebuild his own life. You see, he is not so broken that he's not saying, I can fix this. My will is strong enough. I can do it. I will get myself back into my father's good graces and back into the community. And as he is going home, he's rehearsing this speech. I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this. And this is what happened. So he got up and went back to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Again, the listeners would be overwhelmed by this because no self-respecting Middle Eastern father like landowner is ever going to run. It is not pretty, and it's not even really easy in robes to do this, but he doesn't care. He, he sprints to his son. How many days and hours, it makes me wonder, how many days and hours has he used scanning the horizon with the broken heart of a father? He's lived in agony, praying for this day to come. And the power of this moment is, is captured by Jesus. You know how Jesus does it? He sort of re-earths an old story that all of them know. It's found in the Torah, in the book of Genesis. That when Jacob and his brother Esau, Jacob stole his brother Esau's blessing, that when finally the time is to come for their reunion, Jacob is terrified because Esau threatened to kill him. And this is what we're told. This is what Jesus quotes in his story. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. You see, here Esau is a man who would never run either. But he does that day. He hugs his brother. Jesus uses this story they know because, you see, Jacob believed his brother was going to kill him when they met. And it's Jesus' way of saying, you think you know the way the Father looks at you? But just like Jacob didn't know that his brother loved him, and he couldn't believe it when his brother ran out to hug him, that's the way the Father looks at you. Now, I think this is something we need to hear. You imagine that maybe God isn't that interested in you. Or maybe knowing the stuff that's in your life, and you know it all, You've made a mess of things, or maybe you've wasted your life, or you've done things you're ashamed of or unspeakable things. You think the Father's angry with you. He's not interested in you. But there is not a trace of anger in the Father at all. There is only love. There's no correction. There's only welcome. And there's joy. You see the shock of this? He thinks he's going to be told how stupid he was and how he blew everything. And the Father does none of that. One of my favorite stories that comes from this parable is about a Scottish lassie. Her name was Flora, and her father was an elder in the Kirk up there in Scotland. His name was Lachlan Campbell, and, and as a young woman, as she was growing up, she felt the lure of the big city, London, right? So as soon as she could get free from her father, she booked to London, and she thought she was going to have this amazing life there, but very quickly, she fell into the worst sort of living, the most degrading sort of living you could imagine in the city of London. When her father heard about this with such shame, he actually took out the family Bible and trembling as he did it, he scratched out her name as if he was going to view that she was not in their family anymore at all. But one day, destitute and diminished, Flora was wandering the streets of London when she heard people singing from inside a church. It was Sunday, and they were singing this hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And she could hardly believe it. She went into the church, but she did not want anybody to see her, so she sort of hung in the back, 
And the pastor, as he started preaching, he was preaching on the story of the prodigal son. And he got to that part in the story where he tells about the boy willing to go home, and Flora's heart responded, I will arise and go to my father. And she did. Once she was home, she found her father in tears, confessing his horrible sin and blotting out her name from the Bible as if he were the sinner and had done wrong. When Flora went to examine the Bible, she found her name had been marked out, but the strokes were wavering, and as she said, the ink had run as if it had been mingled with tears. You see, the father, I'm not sure we know him. Do you know his heart toward you? It's here in the, in the story, and it's why Jesus tells it, because of the shock that, that the father, a father would never do this. A, a Middle Eastern landowner of wealth would never run out, and that's what he does. This is the beauty. Jesus says you need, you need to know the heart of the father, missing his son. It breaks the heart of the father. This is how father, the father loves you. And by the way, as far as you have wandered, it doesn't matter. Reeking with the smell of pigs and alcohol and sin, the father just wraps him up in his arms and he kisses him. And here's the son. The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Don't you love that? The text shows us the father interrupts his speech. He won't even get to let him get to the place where he says, make me one of your hired men. He just loves on him. He interrupts. He doesn't say to him, hey, you stink to high heavens. For goodness sakes, go take a shower and shave. And those clothes of yours, they're nasty. Get He doesn't say any of that. Instead, he begins step-by-step step doing everything that is required for the full restoration of his son, right? Just as I am, without one plea. The servants are there on the road. They've run out there with the father. So the father commands to dress him like a son. He is telling the servants to honor and respect him as a master. The best robe in the house is none other than the father's finest clothing. It's his own. And the ring is the signet ring that is used. He's extending his very authority to the son, who is, who is run, run off. It is the sign of this authority given to him. And by the way, the, the sandals on his feet, they're an indication of rank. By the way, no slaves wore sandals, and to have them bring the sandals is a sign of all of that. And by the way, the fattened calf is killed because the whole community is going to show up. And then they will see when they come, the prodigal is dressed in the clothes of the father. This is the father's way of looking at everybody and saying, accept him back out of loyalty to me. You see, this isn't a superficial salvation. Everything that it needs to be done to restore us in every way is done freely by God. And what is the son asked to do? Not a thing. Just to be able to receive that love, be willing to receive it. He does not have to do anything but to accept this grace. By the way, to give him his best robe and put the signet ring on his finger, your sin is gone. He's saying your heart is free. 
This is the beauty of God's love for us and where we stand because of grace. But notice what Jesus then says. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Now, this is a powerful scene. So if we're to get an image from the first part, it's of the father running to you, running out to you, embracing you. But here's this second scene. The older brother stayed home, and now he's receiving the news that his brother is back at the house, and there's a big party. And by the way, we think he is the good guy in the story. His younger brother is the prodigal. But there's something that we've missed. Do you remember when the father gave the prodigal his share of the estate? This is what we were told. He divided his property between them. Do we get that on the screen? Do we have that slide? Yes, maybe. He divided his property between them. There we go in verse 12. The older son gets his share too. And at this point, as he loved his father, he would throw an absolute fit. He would say, there's no way I'm taking this. I'm not in on this plan. I, I love you too much. I want every minute with you. But he doesn't do that. And there's another surprise. In his culture, the person responsible for showing the will and purpose of the father is always the oldest son. He would have the responsible to go to the far country, as far away as it may be, to restore him to his father. His job is to do the will of the father out of love for the father. But he doesn't do a thing. Here's what happened. The older brother became angry and refused to go into the party. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. He's so proud of himself. He's been faithful and obedient. But even here, in his own words, he betrays his heart. He's been the slave in his father's house. He didn't see himself as the beloved son that he is. And by the way, he looks good, but he doesn't love his father. Or he would rejoice that his brother is alive and home. And his father literally has to leave his own party to plead with him to come in. By the way, in those days, the older son would have at least two major roles if your dad threw a feast. One is the guests are arriving, your father's inside, but you're at the door and you're telling everybody, you're welcoming them, and you're telling them the purpose of the feast. But this brother can't stand there and say, hey, we want you to be happy because my brother is home. And the second thing he was called to do once everybody is in, he's like the head waiter. He, it's his job to make sure everybody has on their plate and in their cup what they're supposed to have. And here is this older son willing to do none of that, support none of his father's wishes. These, these are those religious leaders around Jesus. People are coming to the Lord, and not only are they not there, they're against what's happening. He has dishonored his father's wishes, and he's rejected his brother. And as I read this, I think, oh my goodness, how, how many times have I been like that older brother? Or maybe you have. You feel pride in your status. You feel so much better than other people. There's a deep self-righteousness because we think we've been faithful, right? We've done what the Father has asked of us. And also we feel overlooked, like the parties are always for somebody else. But have we gone in search of our brother? 
The good news is this. Jesus is telling this story with the hopes that they will recognize him as the true older brother. He's come in search of all of them. He's come in search of those self-righteous leaders and the tax collectors and sinners who are listening in that day. And these religious leaders should rejoice that he is pursuing them and everybody, but they only complain, but not our brother Jesus. He's searching for you and for me, for those who are, are far away. There's no, no, no place too distant he won't come. And by the way, this explains why Jesus does everything he does. It's out of love for his Father that he goes to the cross to cover everything that stands between us and God, to cover our debts and our sin. He is willing to do that because he loves the Father. He will do anything to retrieve you. One of the, the movies I watched, I think it came out in 2016 or 2017, portrayed this so well to me. And I don't want to encourage, to encourage you to see it because it's so traumatic. Maybe you already have. It's entitled Hacksaw Ridge. It tells the true story of uh, the only guy to ever get the Medal of Honor as a conscientious objector. His name is Desmond Doss. He becomes a, a medic in the Pacific Theater during World War II. There's hazing and a mistreatment of him on his way to service, but he insists on serving. And when he's asked why, this is what he says. With the world so set on tearing itself apart, it didn't seem, it don't seem, I'm sorry, like such a bad thing to me to want to put a little bit of it back together. While everyone else is taking life, I'm going to be saving it. That is going to be my way to serve. He ends up in Okinawa, and he's assigned to a unit in arguably one of the worst places in the war at that time. That's why it's called Hacksaw Ridge. It seems like hell on earth. And by the way, the violence in the movie will take your breath away. In the turning point of the story, a battle has just ended, leaving so many soldiers wounded on the battlefield. But, but they, the others have to flee. They can't leave them because so many are being killed. And, and Desmond is still there, and he has no idea what to do. He is shocked. And he prays, Lord, what is it you want from me? What is it you want from me? I, I, I can't hear you. And as he's praying, he hears in the distance this one word yelled out, medic, medic. And he responds to that. He's that's like the voice of the Lord telling him, he's got to go. And so braving small arms fire, he finds that man and carries him to safety at the risk of his own life. And though the rest of the unit have long since left, he continues going out and retrieving those men who are left for dead. He carries man to man to safety and to life. And what does he do? Each time he simply stops, and this is his prayer, Lord Please help me get one more, one more. Help me get one more. And you're there and you're like, that's so Jesus, right? Lord, just one more. There are people who are desperate and who need life. He saved 75 people. And what they don't tell you in the movie is he brought in for medical treatment, not just American soldiers, but the Japanese soldiers who were wounded on the field of battle too. This is what the gospel is all about. And by the way, at one point, he gets shot by a sniper. He crawls 300 yards to safety. He's being carried away on a stretcher, and the stretcher carriers follow, walk past another guy who's injured, worse than he is, and he demands to be taken off the stretcher, and that man put on it so that he could be carried to safety. 
And I think this is the gospel. Jesus came to do this. And however wounded we may be, his goal is to carry us to safety and to freedom. And I think, do we get this? Do we see this? Do we see the love of the Father? So the first image is the Father is running to you. And the second one is the Son is just carrying you. He's like, I'm going to get you to safety. He's God, the Father sprints to you. And the son carries you. And listen to the heart of the father. My son, the father said, you are always with me and, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because the, this brother of yours, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He says it's a death and resurrection story. He was dead and now alive. And I think for all of us as I read this, we've probably each of us been one or the other of those sons, maybe both. There have been times when like the prodigal, we've taken our freedom and abused it without any thought to our loving father. Or there have been times we look judgmentally on other people. We thought ourselves so much better than they are. And we've been critical of them in our self-righteousness because we're good people, right? And other people are not. But Jesus is saying in him there is life for all of us. And he's come to bring us home. And also I read this and I think, well, well maybe you've already been rescued by Jesus, right? But what you find out is it's easy to, to wander away again or to drift off or maybe even to run away. And you need to know that the Father doesn't run out to you the second time a little more slowly or, and the party isn't any less the second or third time. He kills the fattened calf and restores us as always because his love never fails. And Jesus, I want you to say, I want you to live in that. So when God speaks to you today, he has only two words. Come home. Come home, my son. Come home, my daughter. Come home with your hands still clutching the bucket of slop. I don't care. Come with your mouth still sticky with the lipstick of licentiousness. I don't care. Come with your breath reeking with gallons upon gallons of, of liquor. I don't care. Come with your whole body slathered in pigsty mud. I don't care. Come home a second time, a, a third time, a thousandth time. All I care is about you. You are all that matters. Come home. Where are you? You see, God wants you to go into this year to live in this grace that he has extended to you in Jesus. Would you, would you pray together with me? Father, we know these stories because we've lived, most of us have lived both of them. We've lived those days we wouldn't want to have anything to do with you, but we sure wanted your stuff. And you've loved us. You sent Jesus in search of us who died to bring us home. And there have been other days, Lord, when we have been so judgmental of other people feeling so superior to them because we feel like our lives are better. And Lord, we're as desperately lost then too. Thank you, Lord, that you keep pursuing us, that you love us. And Lord, help us, help us to join the party. Help this to be a place at Granada where we celebrate because we see your love at work in the lives of people around us every day. Help us to join those search parties that are going out into the city, letting them know that you're the God who created them and loved them, and you love them still. And Father, help us to rest in this, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen.